Hello, and welcome to Our Punch Drunk Loves, a podcast celebrating the films we adore. I am your host, Neil Bolt. On Our Punch Drunk Loves, the idea is this. We have a guest on each episode, and they bring a film they love so much, it's almost hard to explain why. Almost confusing, you would say, like they were punch drunk. So we put our heads together and explore in detail what it is about said film that they love. Revolutionary? No. Necessary? Well, we don't talk about that. It depends. But I'm hoping that this podcast can provide some sort of joyful celebration for the movies of all types. And hey, on a selfish level, I may even find a fresh appreciation for films I love or discover a love for something I've never really considered before. So win-win, if that's the case. Um, Positivity is the key here. I don't want to waste time moaning about how overrated something is or nitpicking at plot holes. Films make you feel something, and that's the important takeaway. Sometimes just sitting and talking about them opens up a treasure chest of revelations about what makes them special. And that, hopefully, is the point of our Punch Drunk Loves. Now, when I decided to start this podcast, I knew exactly who would be the perfect guest to get this train running. I mean, this man got me back on the podcasting saddle as I appeared as a guest on his podcast, Daily Horror Habit. Uh, and we eventually made a podcast together, the uh, horror game-centric safe room on Bloody FM. Uh, he's my transatlantic pal, Jay Krieger. Hello, Jay. Hey, I'm so happy to be here and uh, to be joining you for your solo podcasting endeavor, but, uh, <laughs> you know, excited all the same to uh, chat film with you once again. You know, I've said many times in having you on and getting to know you through Daily Horror Habit and then, of course, Safe Room, uh, as much as I enjoy chatting with you about horror games on a weekly basis, I always uh, relish our time together chatting film as well. Yeah, I mean, as I thank you for helping me kick this off. I mean, as you said, we've talked enthusiastically about movies so often and so this is like training wheel stuff for me now (laughs) having you here is like the easy way into all this because we've done it all before had fun and you know it's part of the main inspiration for doing this at all because you know having those kind of conversations where you start realizing things about films and you're like oh wow didn't think that and there's so many films out there beyond horror that i love to explore and yeah, you know, we, we're kind of going adjacent here for this episode. But before we get into that, as a first-time guest and the first guest, uh, as it goes, um, I have to have a few quick-fire questions. Well, not quick-fire because you can answer as long as you like. Really, so. <laughs> and you know my my likelihood of rambling a little bit. <laughs> yes, so yes, we're we're both very guilty of that, so it's fine. Um, so yeah, just general film questions. So. Your first film memory? Oh, geez. Probably my first film memory was watching the Universal Horror movies uh, with my grandparents. So something like Frankenstein, and that was interchanged with Creature from Black Lagoon. Um, I remember those being very visceral experiences in the sense that they were unlike what I was watching at home, right? Because my grandparents live down in the South and I live up in New England, so I don't get to see them all that often. But they had very different movie tastes than my parents. My parents, you know, got me into plenty of and showed me plenty of fantastic films that didn't necessarily pertain to horror. Um, So I have my grandparents to thank for my lifelong love of horror and science Mm -hmm. fiction and whatnot, because, you know, they would show me the Universal Monster movies, which then would bleed into, you know, a lot of the black and white um, sort of atomic era 
uh, creature features and whatnot, things like them. Um, you know, then that would transition into like kaiju movies and these things like Godzilla and Mothra. And, you know, they were the ones that really gave me my deep rooted love of sci-fi and horror. Um, and, you know, just watching those movies with them, I'll always be thankful for, but also just being exposed to things that were very unlike what I watched at home typically. Um, so, you know, just having those experiences, I think really, uh, not only have stuck with me, but kind of shaped my long love affair with film and, you know, monsters and things like that. Yeah. I have similar sort of uh, grandparent memories when it comes to film where you just got to watch certain things you didn't elsewhere. And they had, you know, satellite TV, which we didn't have at that point. And you're like, getting to watch movies you hadn't seen before. It's the first time I saw a child's play was there. <laughs> On the Halloween that my mum and dad were moving house and we had to stay at my nan's. Yeah, I watched that and it was great. It was wonderful. <laughs> they were the ones that also had direct TV and we didn't have cable at my house. So my grandfather, this was before they even had like DVR or recording or anything. So they oh. would record stuff off of TV onto the VHSs and whatnot. And so, oh, you know, whenever beautiful. I'd show up, there'd be this stack of movies that I'd been hearing <laughs> about on the phone for six or seven months. And then, you know, my mom would travel down with my brother and I, spend some weeks there during the summer and whatnot, but she would always go to bed early. And so I'd stay up late with them and watch things. And that's where I found, you know, The Fly, The Thing, Night of the Living Dead, oh. these movies that, you know, that was a little bit after watching Universal Monster movies. We didn't necessarily go right from <laughs> Frankenstein <laughs> to say, thing, That's one but, hell of a night. <laughs> yeah, that'd probably be a sleepless night at that. But it was the yeah. type of thing where just, you know, having people in my life that I didn't get to see all that often, but every time I did, I came back, you know, ranting and raving about some movie that I'm sure my parents weren't thrilled I'd seen, but, you know, my friends were all of a sudden just like enamored with this idea of like, you saw what? Imagine trying to <laughs> describe something like the thing to your buddies when you're like eight or nine or whatever. It's easier these days because you can say, you know, you know, Among Us. Yeah, okay. So it's kind of like that. There you go. So <laughs> also like nowadays, no matter what anybody mentions, you immediately go to Google, right? But think about yeah. it. In the you know late '90s or even a little bit in the early 2000s, where you know we had dial-up, but it's like that was barely convenient to do anything other than like no. check a Red Sox score or something like that. So it, we also just didn't. I don't know. I was not nearly as probably because of my age, but it's like wasn't doing research on movies and subgenres mm. and these things the way that obviously I would do in early middle school and then into high school and you know as an adult and whatnot. So it was like. There was something very interesting, I think, about a time period where you didn't have source of information like the internet that is today. And it was mostly word of mouth between buddies. And eventually, you know, with stuff like Newberry Comics, somebody gets a copy of a movie or whatever, and they, that gets passed around in these things. Um, so that was like part of coming up and being this sort of like film geek that was I'm somewhat nostalgic for because it was like the days now where I hear about something I've never heard of before, it's like pretty few and far between. Uh, yeah. Not to say I'm like the arbiter of film or anything, but it's like <laughs> chances are if you spend enough time on the internet and certain, certain film circles and whatnot, it's like, oh yeah, I've heard of that. I might not have seen it. Um, and just yeah. not having that frame of reference back in the day, unless you had Fangoria or Sci-Fi Magazine. Um, it, there was something yeah. to that. Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, yeah, I cite that Empire Magazine, which had like these hundred grossest moment thing and it's basically being a checklist for much of what I wanted to see at that point. So yeah, it, I suppose 
Then the next question I have is kind of might be kind of obvious in the answer, but uh, what's your favorite genre? My favorite genre, no surprise, is horror. Horror is my favorite <laughs> genre. I love how malleable that genre is with its subgenres. I love that, you know, as I've gotten older, I've latched onto the genre for different reasons, which then made me explore different subgenres and these things. And um, yeah, you know, being continually shown things that I didn't have a basis for, specifically at like a young age, right? Again, like seeing mm. not only just gore and those types of things, but more importantly, just like telling the types of stories that capture things that were not like very commonplace, I suppose, in the types of movies that I was being shown at home and these things. Yeah. So naturally, like you're going to gravitate towards the stuff that, you know, your parents either tell you not to watch, they prefer you didn't watch those types of things. But still to this day, like I latch on to, and you know this, like I love watching and finding like weird horror movies, things that yes. are not necessarily like mainstream appeal because of the fact that, you know, they either are telling interesting stories or they're telling stories that are frequently sort of like in the mainstream census, I suppose. Um, but also there's that quality of like, oh, before you press play on this, like you should be looking over your shoulder because nobody, you don't want somebody to catch you watching this. Like <laughs> that kind of feeling like from the back in the day when I would um, borrow like M rated games from my buddies when I was far too young to be playing them um, and just being <laughs> like, oh, sneak out in the living room, make sure mom and dad don't catch you kind of thing. Like, that's always been an aspect of horror films that I still like kind of hold on to a little bit. Um, and it plays a big part in just seeking out incredibly strange movies and whatnot that end up being memorable more often than not from far more than just like, oh, it's super gory or bloody or these things. Like it's a lot of the time just exploring interesting personas and characters and these things that don't necessarily always find a mainstream audience. So yeah, it's the type of thing where find a good director that's willing to do that and uh it's usually a pretty good time yeah i think it's something we've discussed many a time yeah but horror is just so all-encompassing there's just so many ways to do it that go beyond you know scary jump scares blood and cuts you know they're all great but you know you can just do so much with that genre and you know you can jump hop in hop into other genres and make it work you know sci-fi being probably the closest i think yeah, in terms of uh, applicable genres that works well with it, you know, we talked about the thing, you know, things like that. So, you know, it, it's perfect uh, sort of bedfellows for that. So moving away from that, something that might be a little less predictable. Um, favorite actors? I say actors because I, I guarantee that I'm going to ask this question and people are going to say, oh, well, I like this one and this one and this one and this one and this one. <laughs> so name me a handful if you need to. So. Uh, let's think, you know, I think my, probably my favorite actor is Kurt Russell. And he's mm. one of those guys that every single time he shows up in something, it's just like my day's been made basically. Like he's so yeah. versatile, despite the fact that, you know, through periods of his career, it feels like he was kind of typecast as like the tough guy. But then, you know, you get to see him have real range and even dabble in comedy, things like Overboard, something like Big Trouble yeah. in Little China, right? And I'm coming to most of these movies far after when they were originally released, right? I would say within the last 10 years, I've been much more explorative with films or subgenres that I don't always gravitate towards, or it's yeah. not something that I might seek out um, over some of my mainstay staple genres, if you will. And I find a 
a great deal of freedom in that because it forces me not only to like kind of randomly select the genre. I'm like, oh, I'll look look for something in that genre, and then if I see somebody like Kurt Russell, like it's game over. That's what I'm going to watch compared to the other you know four or five films I might have on a back burner for that night um, because he is just so versatile and he does a great job of being you know the the cool quiet type, but at the same time you know can have this other lighter side to him. Um, that, yeah. like I said, he's the type of guy where I would watch a movie sight unseen if I knew that he was in it, which is what I did with something like Overboard. Um, and even when I was exploring John Carpenter's filmography for the first time, I had never seen Big Trouble in Little China. I was looking at it initially and kind of like, you know, it's not really horror. And I'm in, you know, all I watch is horror at that point when I'm in, you know, high school or something like that. And I kind of just took a gamble on it because he was in it. And that was really sort of the primer for, you know, looking past or breaking out of the box of like, I only like this type of movie if it's with these types of people or this person that I'm familiar with rather. Um, So, yeah, like Kurt Russell is one of my major, major go to guys. Um, And then, you know, somebody like Brad Pitt is again a guy that I would watch in basically anything, right? I've kind of mm. just, I've described him over the last few years as being basically like a character actor in a leading man's body. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he so relishes in the traditional character actor persona and I think it's something that he's leaned into a lot more over the last 5 or so years. Very um, much so. To the degree that it's like He's his favorite. My favorite performances of his are never when he is the leading man. It's usually when he's part of an ensemble. Recently, something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood being a fantastic example of that, I think, in that, you know, he really does make that movie and it's him playing off of Leo the entire time. And he has his moments where he's the focus, but it's really like him kind of just being this everyman in a role that I think he ends up um, producing some of his best performances, even something like Fury which yeah. I think is one of his better performances. And even if you would say, you could say like, you know, it's like the war veteran that's been through some shit and whatnot, kind of gruff and whatnot. There's sort of like a sentimental nature to that character that I think gets overlooked a little bit when you talk about his ability to dabble in genre, but to make things be personable. It's not always this sort of like cartoonish uh, portrayal almost of like a character actor where you have to be loud, you have to be boisterous, you have to be the center of attention always. It's like he can be very subtle and make an impact yeah. in the scene while being this, you know, very character driven uh, role and whatnot. So, yeah, I would say like yeah. those two again are pretty much the guys where like I would watch anything. And then you have people like Killian Murphy who, you know, I would watch in basically anything as well. Um, but yeah, those are like off the top of my head, probably like three guys of, that I would watch in anything that they're in yeah I mean, brad pitt's an interesting example isn't he because i think he really is one of the most throwback sort of actors we have sure in terms of in terms of that versatility i think babylon's a very good example where he's basically playing that character that he is mm-hmm. you know it's, it's very much a him role again part of an ensemble he's not the main guy he's sure. just in it and yeah you just see the best of him in oh that, yeah you know, and, and um yeah, he has just got that old school quality. You know, I'm, I liked you know a lot of films from that sort of thirties to fifties period where you had these big character actors, you know, and these big actors who just you know they have a shtick, but they could sort of move that shtick here and there. You, know, you think like Jimmy Stewart, who could yep. be all sorts of things in different films, you know, like while still being very 
fundamentally Jimmy Stewart. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't shake the idea that it's Jimmy Stewart in the same way that you can't shake it's Brad Pitt. But he is still showing you something. Yeah, you know, it's that Clark Gable thing. You know, yep. thankfully less tragic. But yeah, you know, and <laughs> right. you know, it, it, it's you know, it's that Cary Grant thing. Even mm. you know, those kind of actors where you just yeah, oh, they're in a film. That'd be cool to watch. You know, I'm sure they'll be a, a good part of it. And they tend to pick things that are interesting. You know, yeah, and um, you know, like that and. Yeah, he's got a humility to him sometimes, I think, that kind of helps with that as well. Yeah, something like Ad Astra really sold me on that sort of just being a character actor in the best sense while not fitting into that traditional mold. So sometimes gets overlooked for that quality he has. And, you know, I am a fan of character actors, whether they have those bolsters performances or not, whether they're typecast. You know, somebody that I'm a big fan of is uh, Edward G. Robinson, right? He basically yeah. play has one persona right but he does it yeah. so perfectly well that every time he shows up in something and you know another uh shout out to my grandparents for you know showing me lots of these sort of gangster noir films from the 40s and 50s and these things that they basically recorded off of like TCM or something and just kind of like being exposed to these types of films but also starting to become familiar with the, you know some of the similar players that show up in a lot of those films yeah. and just because, you know, you have somebody like Edward G who sometimes would play almost a carbon copy of himself from certain pictures of certain pictures. There's nobody else that was doing it like him to the degree that I'm like, oh, that's cool. I still want to see him do that performance again, even if it's like perhaps the last two films I saw of him at, uh, that he was in. Um, just because yeah. he leaves such an impact. He gives so much, you know, in some cases that sort of like bravado almost uh, in a way that <laughs> always makes a uh, an impact. Yeah, there are some great ones like that. And he's a great, I think one of the best examples for him is in Key Largo. Yes. Yeah, where he's just got that, just he takes that shtick and he makes it menacing. He makes it weaselly and he just makes it yeah, something else than it had been in other films, you know, that I'd seen him at that point. And yeah, and it's, that's a film that just brings out the best of everyone in that film. But still, it, it's just, yeah, the, the setup to it, <laughs> ironically, being the same as uh, what would later be, I still know what you did last summer. You mm, think about yep. it always, but <laughs> just to execute a lot better. But, um, well, Key, Key yeah. Largo being an example of, I would say, one of his nastier performances, but that's a mm. testament to you really can't put character actors in this box because when you come along and you have a director that's willing to allow them to, especially at that time period, because I'm pretty sure that was either 40s or 50s Key Largo, but it was the yeah. thing where it's like, when you find that director that's willing to allow a character actor to push the performance they're known for a little bit further, it can yield some of the best results. It can also yield an over-the-top performance that does not show the best of their abilities. But in that case, like that's a nastier performance of his in my memory, um, where I was like, oh, yeah, you know, just because he's playing another mob boss gangster doesn't mean he can't add an extra layer to it um, that you didn't see in some of those, you know, pre-code films um, or even, you know, code films. Yeah. I mean, my personal sort of example from the early, that sort of era is William Holden. Um, In Billy Wilder films especially, you have a right jump between uh, performances from, say, what he does in Sabrina... Where you know he's you know, a foppish, you know, womanizer, who's like really over the top comedic sort of thing. Has his hair dyed blonde, everything like that. 
hair slicked back, uh, sloppy steaks every night kind of guy. <laughs> and then you have him in something like Starlight 17, where he's like, yeah, just steely, just very tight. And Sunset Boulevard again, where, you know, he just you know, gets emasculated by this you know, washed up movie star and just everything that goes on in there. Just the range that man had was just, incredible yeah and yeah and he was one of those that i could look at and go sometimes he's almost unrecognizable from that you know because the way his face is and the way he's had an elasticity to it that wasn't like you know comedic necessarily just he could shift his face almost to the point where when he basically turns up in paul thomas anderson's um last film name escapes me right now his last one Licorice pizza. That's it. Yeah, yeah. When Sean Penn turns up as basically William Holden that film, I knew straight away that he's playing William Holden like that. That's yeah. it. You just great identifier. So yeah, it's great to have those kind of actors. And yeah, Brad Pitt is very much in that mold. I think absolutely. But um, yeah. Last of the questions. Favorite directors. My favorite director is by far John Carpenter. Um, you know that, and I have you to thank for kind of. I wouldn't say challenging me, but like giving me the push to explore more of his filmography because one of the first, if not the first, I think, episode that I had you on for uh, Daily Horror Habit was to chat about Assault on Precinct 13, which oh, yes. I believe at that point was like the first non-horror film of his that I'd seen. And, you know, I would say I kind of lumped Escape from New York in there, right? So it was like I had yeah. watched at that point, obviously, The Thing, Halloween, the Fog, Escape from New York, and whatnot. And I hadn't explored a great deal of his non-horror films. And so, you know, you mm. told me like, oh, I'd love to chat about Assault in Precinct 13. It's not only an early film of his, but it's like a modern Western. That, of course, ended up being probably one of my favorite films of his, which really did showcase his ability to make magic out of very little, right? And I think that yes. just so enamored with the fact that here's a creative that basically starts from the roots and does everything themselves almost. You know what I mean? Like he's not only a writer, he's not only a director, but also the score and whatnot. He's got the fantastic uh, partnership with Deborah Hill, who of course would give us some of his and who deserves just as much credit on some of his best yes. works. Right. Um, and so, you know, seeing his versatility also and playing around with genre and these things, I'm also um, somewhat of a sucker for, you know, I suppose it like underdog stories, right? He is, of course, at this point, uh, revered for his prowess in filmmaking and all these things, but it was not always like that, right? Some of his best films were not critically received well or financially received well. Of course, the easy example being The Thing. That being mm -hmm. a film that bombed and basically derailed his career and everything at that point. And now it's regarded as, you know, one of the best horror sci-fi horror films of all time one of the best films of all time i would go so far as to say and you know he's somebody who i again like even a film like ghosts of mars which i'm not terribly taken with i just saw that for the first time like last year at the same time though there are elements of that that just feel indicative of john carpenter's stylistic sensibilities his genre sensibilities and these things that just make him such a fantastic filmmaker and yeah. I think at this point, you know, it's long overdue that I go back and finally watch some movies like that I haven't seen of his, like Dark Star, um, Somebody's Watching Me, even, you know, Elvis, which he made with Kurt Russell, ah. um, which normally is not something I'd necessarily gravitate towards 
if not for the fact it's directed by John Carpenter and it's starring Kurt Russell. So there's no excuse at this point for me not <laughs> have seen it. I mean, that was literally one of the earliest John Carpenter films I've watched there because you go. of Kurt Russell. Yeah. Like that. And yeah, it's great, I think, for what it is. It's fantastic. I think Dark Star is interesting with that because like, yeah, it's very experimental. And you, you think of the people involved and what they go on to. It's quite fascinating, really, to see it like that. Mm. It's tough watch the first time. I would say very much it's a film you want to be baked for. <laughs> oh, well, it's probably the best way to put it. Yes, you, or lightly buzzed in some way. You like know me to. very well because that's definitely <laughs> what I'm going to do to sit through that. But <laughs> yes, um, yeah. If you're familiar with uh, Red Dwarf, mm-hmm. a TV show, you know that came later, but it has a lot of that same sort of lo-fi mm-hmm. vibes that go on in there, and you know. It, it works really well, but uh, I think Carpenter is still the only director I've seen every one of his films. Everything, mm. yeah, like like yeah, you know, close with like Wilder, but pff, yeah, you know, Carpenter. I, I was actively seeking out stuff I couldn't find easily. Like you know, someone was watching me. You know, I had to find a fucking Spanish language copy. <laughs> yeah, you know, to and that happened to have an English track, thankfully, on it, and. To, to get to sort of complete my collection and mm. body bags I think being on YouTube helped sort of thing sure where he's involved in that but yeah he, he's just a big part of mine as well you know in terms of coming into it you know hence why you know, sort of Precinct 13 was a great sort of thing to go into uh, but you know I could list so many of his films that I just love and adore so yeah great pick there I'd say definitely uh, with, with no bias at all <laughs> So, yeah, we, we spent 20-odd minutes doing the introductions, but uh, we have got a film to talk about in general here. But it is none of that. So the film you brought to us is Timo Chianto's The Night Comes For Us, you know, a gore-tastic martial arts crime spectacle from 2018. This is a Ito, an elite triad assassin, turn on his organisation to spare the life of a young girl. Uh, what follows is basically two hours of blood splattered carnage. There's uh, various low-lives and near-do-wells hunt down the girl and Ito. So Ito and a group of thugs and assassins he knows uh, team up to take on the might of the triads and hopefully get the girl to safety. Yeah, they hope. That's the main thing. So yeah, uh, Timo is an Indonesian director, I believe, and he'd made shorts for several horror anthology films, including the VHS you know, series, uh, the ABCs of Death. Um, he made a couple of like action heavy films like this before the night comes for us, including Headshot. Um, and you know, he's currently, I believe, uh, tackling that trickiest of things, the US remake of an Asian classic in a train to Busan remake, Last Train to New York, um, which you know, obviously gets the very natural why you're remaking the sacred texts, but you know, being you know, of Asian descent himself. I think it's probably in better hands. And given what we see in this film, oof, could be something tasty going on there, I say. So, yeah, it's the first thing I have to ask you, obviously, is like, um, when did you first sort of discover this film? When was your first time watching it? So I saw this film probably two weeks after it was released on Netflix. And the only reason I found out about it was because somebody that I follow on Twitter, Genre Film Addict on Twitter is a fantastic nice. um, resource for people. And, you know, he's Christian Valentin is also a, um, you know, a writer and he reviews and writes these really fantastic articles about, 
you know, horror, but also Hong Kong cinema and these things and films that I would never hear about otherwise, you know, because he just, yes. you know, has this breadth of knowledge, but also just like travels in film discourse circles that I just don't. And so him tweeting about something is basically like the gold standard for me. And so yeah. he made me aware of this film. And it was one of the things where I sat down, I watched it, was blown away by it, and then realized that nobody was talking about it because this was one of the early examples of Netflix completely dropping the ball on marketing what is easily one of their best films I think that they've ever produced. And given yeah. the plethora of media, both TV shows and movies that they produce and whatnot – and they get the word out about certain projects that end up being, you know, garbage for the most part, I think. Um, but then they don't spread the good word about something such as The Night Comes for Us, which is, you know, what I consider to be probably the best action movie of the last decade, I would say. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that I have um, a encyclopedic knowledge of Asian martial arts films or anything like that, right? It's kind of the genre that I'm looking to get more and more into and, you know, finding yeah. certain things, the more that they become available on streaming services and whatnot. But as somebody that was a huge champion of the Raid films, which is kind of the easiest, uh, I think, comparison, right, for films such as this. But even as somebody like myself that was a big fan of the Raid films, this just feels like the next step that you didn't know you needed or was even possible, really, because, you know, those yeah. films made an impact with not only stellar martial arts in them, but just the brutality of the martial arts itself. And basically, I found The Night Comes for Us to be um, the sort of, you know, the evolution of that, really, and it makes the Raid films kind of look like a warm-up, um, in yes. a way, which just to yeah. speak to, you know, the amount of carnage that's in this film. And the amount of carnage that's in it is not to the detriment of the technicality of the martial arts itself, right? I think no. it could be easy for somebody to be like, I'm going to make a martial arts film that's super bloody and super gory. But at a certain point, I would think it would be a difficult balance between the choreography, having that be as pristine as you would expect from a martial arts film, but then on top of it, having the gore and the blood and these things that if a less skilled filmmaker attempts that balance, it might end up being this thing where it's like one takes priority to the other, or it's sort of this sloppy blending of the two. And, yeah. you know, I would really describe The Night Comes for Us as an action slasher. That's how over-the-top brutal it is. And it that yeah. never feels like a detriment to the action portion of that merging of action and horror. Yeah, I mean, coming back to it, there was, like, moments where I was like, oh, yeah, this bit. Oh, yeah, this bit. So it was never, like the forefront of my memory of these big gory set pieces you know like the only one that really sort of stuck with me like throughout like the, you know permeated beyond the scene it was in probably because the scene itself was so good was near the end where you had like the the freeway fight but we'll get to that um so if we sort of roll it back somewhere towards the beginning we'll try and keep it fairly chronological but obviously you know the way these things go will be chopping changing whatever and uh, we're not going for a note for note sort of run through the film here we're just trying to get through things that are interesting things that are, make it what it is and make it such a great film so from the off we get this scene you know where they are just basically gunning down this village these triad gangsters yeah and we get very quickly get the setup of what the story is where joe taslin's you know, ito is decides fuck this i'm not having them kill this little girl 
and turns on his own men basically and yeah, from there everything goes to shit. Um so you know, an early question I've got to ask you here is yeah, Joe tells them as a sympathetic hard man. Seems you know, it works, but why do you think it works so well for him? You know, what is about him that sort of makes him this really workable, you know, reasonable sort of hard man where you can like get on board with the fact that he's yes, a criminal, a bad guy, done all that stuff, but you know, he goes out of his way to for some sort of redemption throughout this film. Well, I think that, you know, you have the obvious words when he's introduced, it's that he's the savior of this little girl, right? It's like, oh, he can't be all that bad. But that very simplistic sort of plot point, I think, flourishes and sees sort of dividends the longer the film goes on because of the fact that you see how repugnant the rest of the characters are in this film um, to the degree that it's kind of like, okay, he has the at least he has this sort of threshold for some semblance of morals, right? Because you see what all the other people that are in the triad lifestyle are doing and whatnot. And even a character such as um, uh, White Boy Bobby, right? Who is one of his old crew members and whatnot, but you see that he has succumbed to the drug trade, right? So he's this addict and whatnot who is struggling in that way. You see how being involved in crime has affected other people and basically like poisoned them, whether a substance was involved or not in various ways. And while he is this hard man at the end of the day, you get to see how he has up these walls as a means of protection, um, which, you know, initially when he kind of like regroups with his old teammates that are still alive, right, or or the ones that have evaded uh, incarceration, they are – it. Basically, it's like he tries to pick up where he left off, but it's after a period of time because he has to let those walls very naturally come down. Um, There's even sort of – and it's probably, I suppose, getting ahead of myself, but it's uh, one of the weaker aspects of it. But like they hint at like a romantic relationship with the woman that helped save him and whatnot at the beginning. And you just get the sense that when he is stacked up against the majority of the other people in this world, that he has these sort of morals, if you will, that he's not willing to break. Um, And – not that that's the most original take for a hard man, but I think that when you get further into this movie and you explore more of the triad, you see how it shaped people's lives and how, you know, while he has lost the illusionment of like what it is to be one of the six C's, right? So it's like, oh, it's all this power and money in these things. Like that's an allure to everybody that joins it that they barely shake most of them. Yeah. And with him, he's completely shaken it. So it just shows that he has a level of, I suppose, humanity to him that was not completely corrupted, right? Whereas then you have Arian, who is his, you know, basically his mafia brother, if you will, yeah, um, who has completely fallen for the ruse of being this all-powerful triad drug member uh, gangster, right? And if anything, he's fallen further down the rabbit hole the longer the film goes on, whereas Ito is quite literally trying to crawl out of that life and have some semblance of a life outside of that. Um, so it's the thing where it's like, I'm on board from the jump because he's like, yeah, I'm not going to execute a child. Like that's a bridge too far for me, despite all the other heinous shit that's been hinted at that he's done. But at the same time, he's the only one that draws some sort of a line in the sand. Whereas basically everybody else you meet with the exception of one instance with Arian, um, they either are unwilling to, or are not capable of doing anymore. Yeah. And in all cases, I think that it's all embroiled so deep in this life that there is no, happy sort of resolution whatever you do because you're too far gone you know once you're in debt to this group you are done for you know one way or the other so 
you know, we mentioned Arian there, and I think uh, his uh, introduction to this story really properly is in that strip club. Yeah. Where we get the first real big fight scene of the film. And I think that scene sets the bar, doesn't it, for this? It really does just show you what this film is about. I liken it, you know, in video game terms, I liken it to the introduction to Majima in Yakuza Zero, mm. where they give him this. You know, where there, you know the character anyway through various other games, but it's such a different introduction where it's just showcasing a different side of that character. And it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, now I see something I didn't see before, but makes total sense of the character. And what little we know of Arian as the film goes on, this scene makes more sense in terms of like his composed side, his, you know, reserved side of you all, where he is very much a tool. You know, of this organization who is willing to do whatever it takes to make things right, but being very dangerous with that, you know, so that he is a useful tool. Yeah. And I think this is a great credit to Timo Chianto being the only person that can really nail this unique style of action in martial arts. Um, he not only, you know, has the background in horror, as you stated in the intro, right? So he is accustomed to graphic violence in films and whatnot, but to see him take his time as a part of the Mo Brothers, which was like the collective of him and another director um, yeah. who went on to do like the Queen of Black Magic early on, right? So they had dabbled in both horror and in action together. And to see a film that feels and is most indicative of like growth of a filmmaker, and I would say explosive growth, because, you know, you yeah. mentioned Headshot, right? Which I think on its own is a fine action film that has inklings of this, right? Of capturing that mm. blending of brutality with precision of martial arts and the sort of dance-like nature of that. But at the same time, like from a technical standpoint, I think that film is far inferior because, you know, and he's even said on Twitter through sort of threads that he had made about production of the film, there's a lot of shaky cam in that movie, which is due to it being um, a lot of handheld for whatever stylistic yeah. reasoning, um, which I think was kind of like a hindrance. Whereas here... You know, the not only is it technically filmed better to the degree that it captures more of the fluidity of combat, but it really has a great understanding of the importance of having contrasting styles of martial arts and just violence in general. And I think that the introduction for Arian is really great because it shows something that is presented far more elegantly than Ito's introduction. Mm. Ito is, you know, on a beach surrounded by bodies. He's got an AK and then, you know, we know that later on he mows down his squad. But it's like the impression you get of Ito is that, OK, he's somebody that's capable of violence, but it can be very explosive and almost like brute force, which plays out into his future fight scenes. But then it almost makes Arian's introduction with that bar fight even more surprising because of the presentation of it being an introduction of this sort of like elegant lo-fi club with neon it kind of feels like a nicholas winding reffin film for a minute where it's got this yeah. sort of synth score in the background everybody's kind of dolled up for the club and then you've got you know the neon soaked back room and then you just see the precision in what he's doing and when he's fighting all these guys and it's you know i suppose in layman's terms it feel it builds routinely right it's that he's mm. either knocking these guys down it's either he's immobilizing them with like taking their own knives and stabbing them in various joints and ligaments and whatnot 
but then of course it's how that scene ends right and the scene ends yeah. with him basically breaking a bottle sticking it in the guy's mouth and slamming the guy's face off of the table which like i was legitimately speechless when i saw that because you're not yes. expecting the film to go to that level of brutality right it's like okay it's one thing to punch a guy in the throat break a guy's neck break his leg stab him in the shoulder so he can't use his arm or whatever but to see that finisher move is just like, oh, okay. <laughs> this is the primer for we're completely unprepared for what's coming. And the film just builds from there. It does, yeah. I mean, that that's what I mean. It really does just set the bar where this film is going in so many ways. And it, it's that bottle kill I was going to mention. It's just shocking, in, as you said, in that sense. But it's just like, oh, okay. Now I know what kind of movie we're in for. Like that. And you know, given generally what I'd seen of movies of a similar ilk before, including like stuff like The Raid, you know, it, I did not expect that, you know, like that was just saying something. Um, and one of the things that sort of permeates these early scenes is like, you know, the dialogue is very straightforward. You know, it's, doesn't, you know, there's no oversimplification, but there's also no long-winded exposition. It's all just told in a very matter-of-fact way. Everything gets dealt with in a way, and you know it's a mix of you know languages, you know, including English. And yeah, I think that's one of the film's strengths is that it just it has a story. It's getting to the point of it. Something that constantly bugs me about like the John Wick films, for instance, is that you have lots of talk about what's going on about John Wick and how dangerous he is, but that's that's the story. Yeah, there's all this background stuff about, you know, all these different organizations and the law and the history behind it, but they don't really matter because the main thing is like they're all stupid because they want to take on John Wick like that. And despite, you know, saying how that's a bad idea here, it's just like none of that stuff is really there. You know, we know there are criminal organizations involved. We know there's relationships between key characters in Nito and Arian here, but it's straightforward and lets the action flow, I think. Well, also, I think this film does better than what John Wick does um, in the sense that, you know, John Wick is all about the mythology of John Wick. It's all about sort of talking about this idea that in this world of assassins and murderers, there's sort of a code, right? That's not yeah. explicitly always spoken, but it's kind of like this thing where it's like just the way in which that world operates. And I find that this film does a better job of that because not only, as you mentioned, like it's very straight to the point. It doesn't bog you down with a lot of dialogue in terms of like, oh, let's explain everything and, and you know, the customs of being an assassin and these different things because it plays out in the action, right? And I think that that ultimately is why this film for being two hours feels probably like a 90 minute movie, even shorter in my opinion, because mm. of how fluid everything is from the story beats to the action and the fighting, like you get in each of those fight scenes, an idea of what the sort of, I suppose, modicum of respect you show to a fighter, a fellow fighter in this world in that it plays out in whether, you know, people that in certain martial arts scenes, when they're fighting, somebody gets thrown to the ground, they give them a second to stand up. They don't have to have this whole set piece about honor and respect and fighting your opponents and stuff like that. It kind of just plays out naturally yeah. in combat. And I would say also, you know, maybe it's not the best example to build off of, but like something that I greatly appreciate with this film, and it's not a direct comparison to John Wick 
and whatnot. Cause you know, the gun foo is very front and center with those movies, but I love Timo's approach to guns in this film because, mm. you know, guns are not the end all be all of scenes, if you will. You know, there are scenes that begin with somebody that has a gun and there are scenes that end with the character coming into possession of a gun, but the gun itself never dictates the entirety of a scene. It's never a cheat code, if you will. It's a cheat code in the sense maybe you get to kill one or two people before whoever has the gun gets disarmed and then mm. you go right back to fisticuffs. And that, again, is maybe not intentional in the mythology of the assassins and their fighting tendencies and these things, but it overall, it never allows you know the martial arts and the pristine approach to martial arts that I think this has to be overshadowed by something like that. Um, it really does allow these fighters and martial artists to allow their skill set to sort of come through in a way that feels very natural um, rather than, again, having to have these long set pieces about what it means to be a six C's and the honor and respect and fight and just kind of getting bogged down in the mythology jargon, if you will. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, the, there is a mythology hinted at, um, but it is just hinted at. You know, it leaves a bit to the imagination, which I think is great way to do it now we're talking about the combat there you know and how it goes and you know not long after all this we get that scene well we get the introduction to you know, who Ito has to kind of go for which is Johan who works in the butchers and you know I love that he you know Johan has this boss style and you know intro video like you know, making him seem like he's some badass going to be really hard to beat or whatever like that in a very traditional sort of cinematic way where he's going to be the big bad you're going to face next and like that you've got to beat him and then he's just fuck all yeah i love that and he's just a sniveling coward that gets you know roasted in the best way possible but it leads to that butcher shop fight which i think is the first time you really get a sense of how inventive the combat will be in this film you know you have the bone saw you have the cleaver Going, you know, the cleaver smile, if you will, you know, <laughs> and it's just amazing. You know, you had those moments that are just really visceral, and you know, I think the odd bit of CG blood that doesn't maybe look as good as the rest, but generally it's paced and shot in a way that is just constantly like chaotic and messy and. In the best possible way, you know, it really is a proper showcase. You know, the thing we'd seen with Ariane was like a taster. This was like the first proper showcase of how brutal this film is going to be and how mean it will be with uh, how it treats the people in it. And yeah, it is a something to sort of really kick things off properly. Johan really gets like the Looney Tunes treatment with the amount of like brutality yeah. inflicted upon him, uh, which is great. Like you get to see it. <laughs> he gets his toe blown off and then he gets, you know, fucked up in a fisticuffs thing. And then he runs away and he continually keeps getting shot in ways that it's like yeah. they just keep stringing him along but not killing him off until the end when he has, you know, this almost like cartoonish. 1920s sort of execution of a mobster with Tommy guns, basically. <laughs> um, but no, you know, I think you're 100% correct in the butcher shop really allowing Timo to go off and show his inventiveness, right? It, mm. And that's the thing, like, the fights themselves are dictated by the environment that they occur within, which gives each yeah. of them some semblance of originality. You know, I, again, I'm not the most well-versed in the greatest of martial arts film, but 
one of my sticking points with some martial arts films in the past has been, you know, you get to see the technical proficiency of the fighters and the choreography and not to say that it's bad, but it never feels like it builds at points with certain films. It feels like what you see in the first five minutes of a fight is what you get in the last five minutes of a film. Um, Whereas with this, you know, the fighting is really dictated based on the environment in a way that reminded me of some like old school Jackie Chan movies, right? And that a lot of it is based upon where he's fighting and what he's able to do and the inventiveness there. And with this, of course, the needle in terms of brutality is going the other way. It's the most inventive brutality you've seen in a film. Um, And I think that The Butcher Shop is great because it's a great example of guns never being allowed to become a cheat code because he only gets off two shots before he loses the gun, Ito. And then, you know, he's contending with all these butchers that, you know, have the tools of their craft in addition to fisticuffs. But then it begins very simplistic with like, okay, there's a meat hook, there's a knife. But then it evolves into cow carcass and then you've got the saw blade and then it's breaking a bone in half and stabbing a guy in the head with it and hitting a guy in the nuts with it and these things. And it's a great just level of inventiveness, I think, that doesn't allow that film or that scene or the film in general to really, I suppose, rest on the laurels of what was successful in a scene that happened prior because it's continually evolving based on the environment that fights are unfolding within. And again, you know, the butcher shop is such an over-the-top sort of set piece for violence to occur within. The weaponry that's used is over-the-top, but I'm going to continually come back to the fact that the choreography never takes a hit for some of the maybe more creative, more outlandish set pieces or weaponry that's used because it's all just, again, the most brutal martial arts I've ever seen that always lands for me. Yeah, absolutely. And then we sort of get that little quiet period just after that before we have a really sort of extended sort of fight if you will yeah and we are probably introduced to white boy bobby yeah. you know exactly played by zach lee and I, I would honestly say in, in modern terms probably one of the greatest cameos in an action film uh, because you know, zach lee is just instantly dazzling something about that character the way he portrays it you know he's a piece of shit Sad sack, feeling sorry for himself, you know, bitter towards Ito, but still loyal, you know, and you get that in a really short space of time. And, you know, you get to know that character for the short amount of time he's in it, you know, in terms of like, you know, how he you know, saves the, girl, the the woman, makes sure she's out of the action like that and stuff like that. And it he's just fascinating, you know, like it straight away, you know, you've had half an hour or so of this film being like it is and then you get him coming into it and he's just wow who's this guy like that sort of thing and everything about him is just you know, magnetic you know? He, he just draws you to him and I love that you learn so much about his character just from his initial introduction yeah. to the degree that and maybe it's this was a me thing and not a general audience, um, I suppose, experience, but it's kind of like you start to make certain assumptions about his character, right? Well, he's this guy that's addicted, that's aggressive towards the protagonist, so he's going to become a weak link in some semblance of that. Also, like the one interaction physically he has early on with Ito, he stumbles over and it reveals that he's got this fake leg, right? So it's like that sort of made me count him out a little bit in terms of what he's capable of from an action set piece, right? And standpoint. 
And then he ends up being basically the person that saves everybody for that scene, right? And I think that that is not only a testament to Timo perhaps sidestepping a traditional route that you might take for a character like that and make them be the weak link that's going to betray everybody or just not really have much of a a footing, if you will, uh, with the yeah. action that comes later and the fighting and whatnot. But then, like I said, he becomes the savior and he's an absolute unit when it comes to fighting. And yeah. it's great because you get to have different styles of... I'm just going to say like violence or fighting, right? Because yeah. you have these people that are clearly trained in martial arts and whatnot. Then you have people that are solely like the street thugs that are relying on weapons. And then you have white boy Bobby who doesn't seemingly have any fighting skills other than being an absolute unit that, you know, <laughs> is, can be inventive on the fly with that, you know, the metal um, caution sign that you find when, you know, somebody's mopping up and whatnot. He uses that as like Kevlar to avoid getting mowed down by an Uzi. And then just the general uh, sort of like drunken brawl style that he has of just like grabbing dudes and fucking them up consistently um, is a nice sort of contrast, I think, to the elegance of a lot of the fighting in this for as elegant as, you know, hacking somebody's head off with a machete can be. Um, <laughs> but I think also, you know, with that apartment set piece, Going from the butcher shop, which is inherently more unique of a fighting locale than just an apartment living room, I think that it really does show Timo's ability to just further evolve the expectations. Because while the apartment scene itself is like very mundane and almost nondescript, it allows him to tap into something that almost feels akin to like in John Woo films, how people can, you know, people can either get shot a thousand times before they die or guns can be fired a thousand times before they have to be reloaded. But the apartment scene allows Timo to kind of establish, I suppose, this sensibility where it's like you can get stabbed 20 times, whether it's a protagonist getting stabbed and they'll be okay or just stabbing bad guys like 30 times in a row before going on to the next guy. Like it allows for a cartoonish level of violence to be established in a way that is not always reliant on the setting itself. But the setting itself is so mundane that it gives him the freedom to like, okay, let's make this unique in a way that isn't overly reliant on the setting itself of the scene. Yeah. I mean, two things come to mind in this. Uh, the wet floor sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, the window, broken glass kill. Yeah. Like that. They're just the broken glass, especially because you know, the way it's teased, it's like, you know, it's coming, you know, it's going to happen. It's just, but they keep sort of teasing it's going to happen and then just sort of edging away from it again. And it, it happens and it's great. And there's these little mini fights going on everywhere and it, it gets torn apart into different areas and it just goes all over the place. And, you know, one of the people involved in that is Fatih, who, you know, I think is an, an underappreciated combatant in all this. Um, you know, you think of the fight in the apartment and then subsequently in the car park, you know, you know and he has that badass send off as a character. You know, not traditionally compared to everyone else, you know, feeling like the fighter, he's very much like, feels like the educated one, if you will, of the film. And yet he holds his own. He does, he's, he does everything right to the very end. So yeah, it's a really fascinating sort of tableau you get with these different characters fighting in different places. The introduction of the two female assassins as well and the, their weaponry as well. Um, and the way that ends White Boy, Boy Bobby as well is just, you know, 
very blunt. Yeah, it's very uh, one of the things this film does so well is just like it's very uncaring about characters and yeah, their fates. It doesn't give them plot armor. It's like yeah, you know, here's white boy, white boy Bobby. He's great. He does all these things you know, like that. He's really charismatic in this really douchebag way. But you know, he's ultimately we're going to be realistic about the kind of guy he is, what he is, who he is against these people. You know, he's not going to get the better of them like that. You know, he'll try to the very limit of it. But yeah, he gets you know, a great showcase for those assassins. You know that they um ultimately get to show throughout the film you know the scenarios well i think that that's again a great way to characterize sort of timo's approach to this film in that nobody has the narrative body armor as you said but at the same time everybody is at least given their chance to make an impact on the viewer in a meaningful way whether it be through violence or narratively speaking like again white boy bobby being able to be this for this force that people basically write off initially, but then is able to show that, oh, there's more to this character in the depth and it's shown through action rather than having to be told it, right? And the fact that yeah. he sacrifices himself to let uh, Faith and the others escape and whatnot, um, which then basically just kicks off the next act of the film, which is them being on the run and whatnot. And, you know, good shout for uh, for Uncle Faith, right? And the yeah. fact that, you know, that character that initially is not shown to be like this warrior. He seems like more of a strategist, right? And then completely holds his own in the apartment up until the point where, you know, he has that badass send-off, as you said, where it's like he gets the moment where he gets to, you know, put it, enjoy his last cigarette. He gets to take out one more guy before, you know, going down in a hail of gunfire. Yeah, yes, yeah, a very prophetic sort of thing for how the film ends up being as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so as a, as a point at that, you know, it's... At this point, probably the high point, and while there is a lot of um, fighting that goes on in the second half, I think it, it begins to get, get a bit knitted together in terms of what's happening. There's less like in between stuff, if you know what I mean. And you know, there's still some cool stuff, I think, because you get Ito in the police truck, you know, with, with the, t- the taser to gun kill. <laughs> in that, it's just like yeah. wow, yeah, like just madness like that, and yeah. I think the thing I would like to sort of go into is then, you know, as much as there's stuff in between, I think what really sells this film then is when you get to that finale area, you know, with the, the penultimate fight, the, the fight itself. You have two fights really going on as you get towards the end of this film. You get the Ito and Aryan fight, and you get the two assassins, the lady assassins against the other lady assassin who's sort of been reluctantly embroiled in this thing with. Um, Ito mm-hmm. and she's looking after the kid uh, while Ito goes off and you know, takes on Aryan. and these two fights in their own right you know, they take place separately for the most part once they really get going but they are the standout moments for so many ways I think because they just feel so brutal so personal I think in, in terms of the Ito and Aryan fight but before we get to that fight I think have to talk about that freeway fight yeah because it's just it is the moment in that film for me just the choreography of it just the fact that it is you know they've already established how badass all three of these women are in various ways and again taking that idea that nobody's you know getting away with anything here you know you you can fail and die here no problem 
and this fight just shows that in so many ways and uh, it's just fantastic like one of the best action fights i've seen in a big film you know in recent years of that shadow of a doubt right down to the end of it where you have the one remaining enemy assassin going one-on-one and like literally having their guts spilling out fighting still like that yeah. but it being the reason that they end up losing because you know now suddenly their their great ice cold focus is taken away from them because they kind of keep their stomach in while they're mm-hmm. trying to fight but still fighting it's just remarkable it was the point for me with this film was like fucking hell this is something special you know like as much as i'd seen everything else and been like really wowed by it it was just this fight was the best example uh, of choreography uh, cinematography and just how the brutality of this you know like and that, the cold brutality of it because it just goes places that are just mean spirited <laughs> really like uh, oh yeah it does not hold back well this is the thing with that scene right there's safety in numbers in terms of scenes we've seen characters square off against you know 20 30 guys in certain scenes and you get that with ito when he goes to the warehouse right before the final fight with uh arian and whatnot even go back to the apartment fight even going back to the butcher shop it's usually handfuls if not more against a solo fighter or a small group of fighters. And with this, you know, when it's so intimate, it's this three-way fight, a two-on-one. And at the same time, it highlights one of the aspects of this film that I love, and again, does something I think even better than the John Wick films does, which is establishing this rogues gallery of assassins and their specialty without having to have this laborious, played-out dialogue about their backgrounds and everything. Like, you infer a great deal about characters just from either their very unique looks or their fighting style or the weapons that they use. Um, and I think that that's something that both uh, Elena and Alma, who are the six C's members that the operator fights are like clearly defined by their weapons, right? They have these unique yeah. weapons. Which- I think it's like a Kikuri blade, yep. isn't it? I think that's, that's the one. Right. Alma has sort of this garrote wire that has a ball on the end of it, which, you know, she lovingly wraps around a character's neck early on and, you know, slices their throat and whatnot. And, it's nice to see contrasting fighting styles and weapon styles and whatnot coming together in one scene that is as cohesive as you could ever want a fighting scene to be. Um, again, you know, I'm now at this point now, it's been an hour of me rambling about how brutal the violence is and, you know, the tight <laughs> choreography and whatnot. But it's as much about setting the stage in the environment as it is capturing what is happening. You know, I'm sure there's yes. there's cuts, obviously, in certain things, but it's not done to the degree that I think some people in terms of general audiences perhaps will write off certain action films as being like, oh, it's just plenty of quick cuts, too much editing, you can't see what's happening. And I honestly can say that I've never felt The Night Comes For Us is unclear in its combat, if you will. Oh, no, I mean, points it literally just has the camera follow arm movement, leg movement, like all the way down, all the way up again, like that. And, you know, that that just makes it feel... Like the opposite of what we were talking about earlier with the shaky cam and headshot, it, it really does just sort of bring the focus. It's like, no, you're coming along for every second of this, like that. And it, it really is just oof, special, isn't it? And, you know, another point about headshot, as much as I enjoy the fights, it has that film has a boss structure to every single fight. And I think it's mm-hmm. mostly due to the pacing and it's the build up to things. And, you know, the night comes for us streamlines 
the narrative a lot in this film to the degree that when the fight scenes occur, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel formulaic. And maybe that has something to do with the settings being as interchangeable as, or rather being as uh, different as they are from the one that came before yeah. them. But I just never felt like there was this clear cut blueprint structure to how the film plays out that when you have these set piece battles, it kind of just feels very naturally flowing into them. And the fact mm. that you can go from, you know, the operator having a shootout and whatnot to then bleeding right into this, you know, two on one fight. That's probably, again, the most technical fight of the film. Um, and it ratchets up the brutality again in ways that you're not expecting, whether it's Alma getting the garrote wrapped around her neck and then getting wrapped around an AC unit that gets kicked out of the window yeah. that severs her own throat and fingers to, you know, the other one that has the uh, the blade that we mentioned and having this really intimate one on one. But then, of course, you know, getting her guts spilled and not only that, but like getting stabbed in the arm and then having the blade slid all the way down from her basically yeah. elbow to her <laughs> wrist is probably the gnarliest fucking thing I've ever seen. And the fact that when I rewatched some of the fight scenes before recording this. You know, I'd literally have to look away at that moment because it so <laughs> it's so upsetting and so visceral um, in a way that, you know, a lot of the film is. But it's just something about that horror sensibility that Timo has that allows certain kills to just stand out in a way that, unlike anything else I've seen. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit we'll get to in a bit that, that it was like a stand up thing when my son sort of walked in on the end of the film. Like, uh, but we'll get to that. Um yeah, we, we're talking about this other fight that was going on, and you, you're right to mention you know, that Ito has like a fight with a bunch of goons before he fights Arian, which I had meant to sort of include as part of this. And yeah, that you know, is great on its own level because yeah, the whole ingenuity of like padding himself up for it by literally using fucking phone books as armor. One of my favorite <laughs> tropes in either film or TV is just like using phone books basically as Kevlar. Yeah, you know, because, you know, that old legend of how you know, hard it is to rip a phone book like that. And, you know, he does just pad his body with a, you know, duct tapes other stuff to his body. Like, and, you know, and you see why it's so necessary as you get into that fight. And there's a great example of what I was talking about, you, you know, the camera following certain shots and like stuff with the, like the pool thing. And like, oh, there's just so many horribly grisly things that, but it's also just a really it feels like the most angry fight scene of the lot, you know, it just, he's, you, you can feel that it is penultimate in a way that, yeah, isn't being outright told, but just in the way that he's just going ham on everyone, you know, and just, and just really just kicking the absolute shit out of every person he comes across. So even if they can get him, you know, he's padded himself in those ways that he has. And yeah, it's a great selling point to get, to that finale. I'm just seeing this guy that's been the ultimate badass for a majority of the film and then be faced with his biggest threat. Yeah. Which is, you know, having him fight a hundred people basically. Uh, and he's just even more inventive. And the fact that, you know, it kind of just reinforces this is a character that is not going to allow anything to get in their way from what he wants, which is this one-on-one -on -one mm. fight that the movie's been building towards. And the fact that, you know, they, again, kind of take it to this Looney Tunes almost level of violence where it's like he's going to fight a hundred people and he's going to use everything at his disposal and apparently never runs out of endurance and is just like invulnerable to baseball bats to the elbows and forearms and whatnot is just, you know, 
so great to see, but it doesn't ever become slapstick to the degree that you kind of like no. start to tune out because again, it comes back to just the proficiency of the fighting. And if anything, in that warehouse brawl scene, it's a great example of just not only squibs, but just of utilizing blood and gore in martial mm. arts where it makes, and it's just as much a testament to like capturing those moments, but they don't lose their visceralness no matter how many times you see somebody get their ankle broken or their shin broken because around the corner it's going to be somebody takes a meat hook to the nuts or you yes. know taking the um, the pocket net from a pool table and having it full yeah. of pool balls and just smashing it against <laughs> the guy's head until it just has a geyser of blood pop out using a guy as a human shield as he's getting hacked to pieces with machetes and whatnot like the film just builds and builds and builds and excites and shocks in ways that you just don't normally associate with martial arts films. I don't care if you're, you know, somebody that consumes all of martial arts media. I guarantee you that this is a film that would still leave people speechless at moments because of the fact that it goes in directions that are just not overly common. And it's furthermore why I think Timo's the only person that could have made this movie. Yeah. 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 Given the background of his work before and after this, it just is Timo all the way, isn't it? It just, a very distinct style. You know, and I think it is just making everything as brutal as possible. I think it is definitely the thing that comes across as a, a rawness to the things he makes. And, you know, this is in some ways the rawest because of how nasty things can get. And yeah, that, that fight is just a constant reminder of like how, savage you know ito can be and yeah it just leads well then into that final fight where you know the two styles you're getting you're getting this composed but deadly guy against the guy who's just not reckless but just he will be aggressive on the front foot come out yeah like that and react to your attacks very quickly sort of thing that scene also has a great example of Timo's humor and sensibility, I think, contrasted against, you know, again, this his penchant for brutality and whatnot. And that's when Ito gets a shotgun off of somebody at the end of that fight. And basically, he kind of gets the cheat code at the very end. It's like, here's your reward for killing a, yeah. a thousand people, basically. And so he gets the shotgun. And again, like to Timo's credit, every time a gun is used, it's impactful in a way that so few action films nail. Because it becomes, yeah. you know, the frequency with which guns are used in a lot of action movies, it's like, okay, one kill is kind of like the next in a sense, right? You can't really shine yeah. a spotlight on any one moment. But guns are used so sporadically throughout this that it's like somebody's not just getting hit with a shotgun. They're getting their face basically turned into a canoe, right? Or just it's yeah. just this red mist that looks like something out of fear. So he not only uses guns <laughs> in a way that makes them incredibly impactful and memorable, um, considering how sparingly they're used. But you also get that shot of Ito after he's lit guys on fire and you get this thing where they're like writhing in pain and whatnot. It's sort of slow-mo. And then behind him, there's a sign that says like, safety starts with me as he's brandishing <laughs> this shotgun and looking at his handiwork, which is like, again, for as brutal and violent as this film and as angry as this film is, you still get the sense that like Timo doesn't take himself too seriously or he takes himself... Seriously, but not to the point where he kind of like has some semblance of an ego, I suppose. Mm. Because, you know, if somebody is going to be making a film that is as angry and violent as this, 
you can see some filmmakers getting lost in that, I think. Yes. And you just, I just don't get that sense with Timo and, you know, what little I know about him from just, you know, social media posts and these things. He just seems like somebody that has a good idea of who they are and doesn't necessarily take themselves too seriously, but their work proves itself in terms of their craftsmanship and the fact that, you know, they are incredibly good at what they do. um, But at the same time, they don't let that kind of like build this crazy ego uh, for themselves, if you will. Absolutely. So we go on to this penultimate technically, because there is a scene at the end that isn't a fight, but this is the last fight penultimate scene, if you will, uh, with Ito and Arian, you know, coming together to finally fight after we've had this whole sort of tease of them meeting you know at this point the film has basically had them at opposite ends you know they, they they're meeting from other sides of the film to get to here like that they've had, both had their journeys Ito's is more prominent but Arians is enough that you know what's at stake for him and how much power he could gain from doing this job uh, and taking this uh, taking his friend out now that you know colors much of this fight you know, it's a, the reluctance but also a determination from both sides where they're both fighting for something you know one to get out of all this finally and be done with it you know and the other to move on and be higher in the food chain if you will and be more powerful and you know they, both those desires are so strong that it really does just make this fight you know end-to-end stuff you just go hit hit there's a great length of sequence in this fight where nobody really hits anyone because it's block 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 like that and it's just you know not just for the shots but also like weaponry and like stuff like that and it just constantly goes on like that where and yeah it's almost wrestling level choreography you know where you had this just great you know way they are playing to a crowd that's not there where it's just like yeah, you're going to hit me and I'm going to hit you but I'm going to block it you're going to block it like that and then we're going to do escalate it to another weapon or this weapon or that and near misses and things like that and yeah I think it's insane some of the things they do in this now the thing I was sort of referencing earlier I don't know like the, the, the bit my son was like yeah who's been exposed to Febic already but he got to this point in the film we were eating lunch probably didn't help um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's where the bit where Arian basically st- gets a box cutter and puts it into Ito's cheek I think it's just the fact that Ito smiles for it and just does a very much a, a, a go on then face just daring him to just slice it, the rest of his face open sort of thing like that and you know just the reaction that gets as well from Arian as well, it's just, oof. it really does just blow you away in the moment because You've seen all this nasty stuff to this point. There's something about that that just feels... Because it stops and waits on it. You know, a lot of the violence happens before. It kind of... it fleet, It's fleeting. It passes, you know, in the moment because the next thing's happening. But here is something that just stops and lingers on that. And it's something... Well, yeah, it's believable. It certainly would hurt, but wouldn't kill you. But, yeah, it's, uh, that kind of makes it worse sort of thing. And, yeah, again brilliant point of selling Ito as a character you know just like fuck it I will take everything and anything you've given to me channeling a bit of what white boy Bobby is you know as well as the further he goes into this film and yeah it's just you know 
in its own right, though I don't think it's the best fight, I think it's a really spectacular fight because of the stuff you've been given beforehand, you know, the background between these characters, why they're doing this, and ultimately what comes out of it, you know, in terms of how futile it all was. You know, it just feels... It's senseless violence, yeah, in the best way. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's that's what makes it great. Well, I think that you know, first and foremost, it allows them to showcase Joe Taslim and Eco Weiss in the same scene, right? Typically, yeah, we haven't seen them in the same scene. So, getting to see both of these martial artists at the top of their craft, displaying yes. that, but at the same time, you know, having contrasting fighting styles, I think, and that's sort of hinted throughout the film or displayed throughout the film and to get to see that play off of one another um, is really terrific and you get to see you know Arian is the more technical fighter I would say yeah. but at the same time Ito is the one that can take more hits he's kind of he's got a little like Joe Frazier in him the boxer where he's like I can yes. take a shit ton of punishment and when I hit you you fucking know that I hit you whereas he shrugs off basically the first dozen hits that Arian throws at him. Granted, you know, it's momentary, but it's the type of thing where you get to see this technically proficient fighter that has this crazy endurance that, you know, there's this one string where uh, Arian basically like is dodging and then hits him like six times in the span of two seconds and then dodges yeah. and then does it again. And it's almost like the E Honda thousand hand slap kind of thing, but yes. you know, more proficient. And then you get to see Ito who basically gets his ass kicked for the first three minutes of that fight but then he hits Arian twice and it's like, oh, two of his hits are worth 20 of Arian's. Um, yeah. And it's just a really great contrasting fight style that matches their body compositions in a way that I think just makes sense, right? It's a little more yes. natural than just like the small guy versus the big guy, right? Like the guy yes. from um, Train to Busan, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, where it's like, yes, that's more obvious of a type of like, distinguishing between fighting styles you've got the guy that's like this absolute unit versus a smaller guy in this they're somewhat similar in size but at the same time like they their styles speak for their sensibilities and their capabilities as fighters um yeah. and just again like the way that scene is shot you don't lose a minute of what's going on you get a real sense of space with everything um mm -hmm. and the way that it's just paced and ratchets up like the more desperate they are getting for this to end, they start reaching for the things that, you know, it, normal people would have reached for in the very beginning, which is things like screwdrivers and knives and hammers and these things or exacto knives. And the fact that, you know, they're allowed to, as martial artists, display their natural craft or their abilities, right, of just hand-to-hand -hand combat and then moving into something that's more in line with Timo's horror sensibilities with weaponry and these things. And, you know, of course getting to see that exacto knife in his mouth and then breaking the blade off in it is never not gruesome as shit. It makes my skin crawl, but it's nice to see the merging of again, action, traditional sort of martial arts with Timo's more horror centric um, sort of sensibilities yeah. that just turn the volume up on everything. And, you know, again, if it was a lesser filmmaker, turning the volume up on your own sensibilities would begin to feel maybe like a hindrance, if anything, to what you're building off of. But Timo seems to have the wherewithal to know exactly when his own interests or influences as a filmmaker or storyteller can really pop at like an ideal mm -hmm. moment to heighten a scene, um, if you will. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, the end of that fight is very bittersweet. I think in that you know both men are basically fucked by the end of it. You know, in so many ways. But I think, like I said, the inevitability of uh, the outcome and that you know, we you know Arian was always being used by the triads to, uh, because of you know, this connection and yeah to be sort of end like he does is very much it feels like a proper gangster film thing you know like like oh yeah you thought we were all pals but really you know you're a commodity and if you don't do your job you're dead sort of thing so that in itself is like a really great send-off maybe i suppose but in a very yeah fitting i'd say the best thing he did the icarus thing yeah effectively uh, just with more punching and um, blood. <laughs> so we get past that and we get to the finale, if you will, which is basically, you know, Ito being beat to shit. Uh, you know, he's, you know, basically half dead at this point. You know, and, and we get you know, through a, a lot of other things that happen in between. We get to that final showdown, you know, where he's basically revving that car up, knowing that, yeah, you know, the situation is he's there in a car revving up. Against a whole bunch of triad goons with guns, the outcome is inevitable, like that. But the film once again shows Ito as a character, the determination and the "I don't give a shit" attitude of how he approaches every combat situation. And here it's just like he knows he's doomed already before it, because you know, he's bleeding heavily from the fight. You know, he, he's probably going to die from that anyway. Because he won't get help in time, given everything else is going on, and so he takes that decision to sort of try and take out as many of them before he dies. It's that old butch and Sundance thing, isn't it? Just like mm-hmm. going off. You you know what the result is, but it makes for a cool sort of final shot, and just that grin that, that uh, he does is just you know, a constant throughout this film. Anyway, whenever he gets into certain situations, he puts on that really toothy sort of large leering smile where he just you know someone's about to fucking get it you know at that point and you know that is the perfect example of it you know it's an exquisite send-off to that film i think you know just leaving it where it does perfect perfectly done well that's the thing right is that it speaks to the futility of what both of them have been spending the entire film doing, right? Because really, yeah. there's only one outcome for them in this life. And I think that for them to go through those the Looney Tune stakes again of all the violence and everything like yeah. that and what they're able to survive, should they get a happy ending, that wouldn't fit with the sort of overall mm. tone of the film, right? It almost makes the film take on sort of and you know how much I love leaning on this uh, expression, but kind of like a dreamlike quality of this movie in that it's almost like you could imagine them dying within the first 15 minutes of the movie, and the rest of it is this like gangster's dream of what their life would be like, or this hero's fantasy, right? Because of the extremes this movie gets to, when the reality is, is that everybody would be dead within, you know, a couple of minutes of a fight or something like that. Or most of these fights would end with just everybody being dead. Um, so the fact that they both do meet a demise that is equally fitting while equally different feels very in line with their characters and the reality of what their arcs would be. It's like, okay, so let's say Arian gets to live at the end of the movie. He gets to become this sort of like mob lord of a certain area or all of 
um, Jacquerat, at the end of the day, he's going to get killed by somebody else that he doesn't see coming or just somebody that yeah. steps up to the plate. Whereas at the same time, you have Ito where it's like, okay, he got to save the girl, the girl that he sort of had a fling with or had a romantic relationship with got to escape. What's really for him outside of ensuring mm -hmm. that a loved one and somebody that he felt a certain semblance of responsibility for got to escape? What does the rest of his life look like? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you can never forget that like even though he takes on this hero's journey and has this arc, he has a lot of sins to answer for still. And one event does not sort of um, save his soul or nullify that, if you will. Yeah, it almost does from the outset feel like a doomed journey. Yeah. Like, uh, with it, the knowledge that it's doomed from him, you know, he's just doing what he can before he checks out sort of thing with the tiny hope that maybe he can get out as well. Like that. He wants to redeem himself. I think he just comes to a point where it's a revelation for him. It's like, I can't do this anymore. I can't be like this anymore. And, you know, that, that just ends up being the catalyst that, that sets all these events in, in motion. You know, those deaths are, are just very perfect, you know, for those characters, as we said, because, you know, there's the cold, clean, calculated nature of how Aryan dies. And then, you know, in Ito, it's just, it's loud, chaotic and right and reckless to some sort of short degree. So it's really is the perfect way to end that film in so many ways, I think. So it's a grand one for that. Um, so before we get towards the end here, is there a scene or shot in this film that you would say is just burned into your brain? Yeah, I would say it's the operator's fight with Elena. Again, just the way in which yeah. you've been watching this film now for almost an hour and a half. And you get to that moment and it still continually ups the stakes, both in choreography, in brutality, but it also has the most affecting death, I think, which is the most reflective of horror, I think. Right. So the fact yeah. that, you know, not only do you have this character, the operator who like rips off her finger, that's basically a nub at a certain point. You're like, oh, fuck, like that's gross. But then, you know, <laughs> Timo has you with the one two punch of that reveal of like Elena. She's got her guts in her stomach. And then, of course, the arm uh, slice, like I mentioned. And yeah, that whole fight scene, I think, is kind of just etched into my brain because, again, you know, the ebbs and flows of that is so fantastic. You even have that moment where they basically have like locked blades and they have this moment where it's just like standing still waiting for one of them to make the next move. You got that yeah. synth score that's like just beating in the background, getting progressively more aware and then you have like the fly that crashes into the bug zapper, which then is the yeah. catalyst for the rest of that fight and whatnot. And just it's such a well-paced fight that has breathing room in it. And yeah. that's not something that a lot of the fight scenes in this movie have, which is not a criticism because of how those fights play out. It feels natural when you've got these massive groups. But when it's one on one at that point, it's like you got to have a second where you just let the scene breathe you let people catch their breath and then it plays out for a finale that again is just building, building, building and has the biggest uh, conclusion or the most violent conclusion, I think, in the movie. So to round off, don't let it be said that this is you know, a podcast full of insipid saturn adoration for a film. We can have a sliver of negativity, I think, here on our Punch Drunk Loves, but we're going to do it in a healthy way. So we would say here is... What's the one criticism about this film that you'd readily accept? 
So I basically consider this film to be perfect, in my opinion, in terms of just yeah. like how it's able to capitalize on, again, that blending of genres and whatnot. And at the same time, it's kind of double-edged and a little bit of a cop-out, but like how simplified the story is that it allows the strength of this film to shine through in a way that don't feel hindered by something that mm. at the end of the day is probably not that interesting, which is the narrative. But at the same token, yeah. the narrative of this and the structure of it is about as bare bones as it gets, right? You've got yeah. the drug triad guys or the people in crime that want to get out. It's not inventive in that regard. It doesn't deviate from that very simplistic blueprint that I've just described. And you get the semblance of who characters are, but you don't really get to spend a lot of time with them to understand anything past their sort of blanket uh, motivations for what they're doing. So I would say that, you know, the one aspect of this film that is could use work in basically every way while still not being this overall hindrance is just the story and the structure of it. Um, at the same time, though, who's to say that amending that and putting more emphasis on those things wouldn't then make this film feel a little bit more bloated? Because like I said earlier, mm -hmm. at two hours, it doesn't feel like a two hour movie, in my opinion. And, no. you know, I've seen a couple of the deleted scenes that were uh, published on YouTube after the fact. They're, they're story focused and I don't find that they add anything um, to that. There's like a scene where the operator goes to basically buy her guns for going mm. on this mission, which I don't think adds anything. And then there's an interesting deleted scene that I, well, it'll make sense once I describe what it was, but like there's that meeting after Arian doesn't allow Alma to kill uh, the little girl. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. he goes and meets with the boss and there's an addition to that scene that got cut where somebody comes in with like a cardboard box and opens it for him. And basically like his wife or girlfriend has been decapitated. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that was one of those things where I saw that and I was like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. But how does that make him more indebted to the six C's? Like I didn't understand yeah. what that really adds other than being like, yeah. his loved one has been killed. So it's like the notion that you're going to add more to his backstory along those lines I don't see that being included and it not being sort of this messy thing where it's like, oh, we're hmm. putting more time on this, which then makes him more sympathetic, which goes against the initial conceit of like Ito is this guy that is trying to atone for past sins and everything like that. And so it's a double edged sword for me where it's like if you try to amend the narrative or make it more meaningful or anything like that, then you get in the way of what makes this film, in my opinion, perfect, which is, again, the yeah. action and the violence and whatnot. But for you, like, I'm curious, what is uh, an aspect of the film that you think could have used some work or something that maybe uh, could have just been handled better in general? Um, I like how punchy the start is in a lot of ways, but I think it starts a little too abruptly, you know? I think there's a little too much that just, it just happens like that. I mean, I could see criticism of how slight the story is um, but as you say, I, I get why you know, you're always going to look at it from our side and say, well, you know, it works for the story they're telling and it's what makes the pace work. Um, there is that section after the, you know, after he escapes the, the police riot van thing to those fights we mentioned where it kind of loses a little steam, but not too much. You know, I think it's probably necessary at that point, given how much you'd had by then you know the scene preceding it basically is 
been one long, you know, assault on, on the senses. So it's fine. I, I think that's fine. But yeah, I, I could see how that could aggrieve you know, in those ways. But yeah, that, that, that's it. Different opinions on different things, isn't it? So. I'm trying to remember what it's getting intercut with. I think that during the apartment fight, there are scenes that are being intercut with that, that it moves away from and moves back to, which I think kills a little bit of the steam of the apartment fight itself. Um, I can't, I'm struggling to remember what that was, but like it bleeds into the van fight, right? Where it's going between yeah. that and then it cuts back to something else. And that moment always gives me a little bit of pause. I think it's the van fight and then faith in the garage. And it's going yeah. between those two periodically where I was always like, I wish she'd let one of these breathe more. And it comes back to what I said about the final fight at the end with the operator and uh, and uh, Alma, where it's just like, that was allowed to breathe. But then you go yeah. backwards and it's like, okay, well, there's a lot of intercutting between these two. I wish that they could just be their own separate things. At the same time, it's a pretty small critique. Um, yeah, fair enough. I think that's, that's healthy critique, so I'd say. So, um, that is it for episode one of our Punch Drunk Lives. Jay, thank you very much for being the first guest. Of course. There's no podcast I'd rather be the guinea pig for than this one uh, for our first episode. So I'm uh, I'm just happy not only to see you doing your, your solo movie endeavor, but at the same time getting to gush about a, uh, a film that I love very much and finally having a platform to do it. There you go. That's, that's always the point of these things, isn't it? Really? <laughs> <laughs> and personal indulgence if there ever was one, but... I'm happy for the opportunity. Fantastic. Thank you. I'll be back with another guest, another film soon. Uh, until then, go show your punch trunk love for your favorite films. <laughs>